0: Father, we pray that you would speak. We, your servants, are listening. Would you speak to us, Lord? And we pray, do what we cannot do in our own strength or power. Transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 1. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a red copy around you. And, and I want to encourage you to grab that if you can. Uh, I know we all have phones, and we can scroll on our devices, and I'm certainly not saying this is a law, but there's something about picking it up and seeing context and where it's coming from and understanding how it all fits together that I find to be really helpful uh, in understanding Scripture. So you certainly don't have to do that, but those are there for you to use. Um, if it's been a while since you've actually had to open a physical Bible, uh, it's kind of all the way to the right, and then just turn back a few books right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, you have Acts there. So Acts chapter 1, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 4 and read through verse 14. This is what um, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes. While he, that being Jesus, was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all all were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you missed last week, we started a series that is going to take us through the majority of this year in... Uh, this book of Acts, and we're looking at what it means, kind of rolling out of our uh, vision series. What does it look like when God brings abundant life into the world through a community of Jesus's disciples? And Acts is the second volume of a two-part uh, work written by Luke. Luke is a, was a physician, and he was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And so, Acts essentially continues to tell the story of Jesus's ministry of bringing the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God, from uh, heaven, to the earth. And, and Acts, um, in Acts, in, in Luke, this, the first part, you had the Spirit working through Jesus as he's physically present to bring the kingdom. In Acts, you have kind of the inverse where Jesus is actually working through the power of the Holy Spirit, not physically present, but spiritually present, to continue to grow this early church. And so Acts kind of gives us the origin story, the beginnings of how this small movement of a very minority movement of mostly Jewish disciples with zero political power, no economic power, no social or cultural power, this movement literally sweeps through the Roman Empire over the next couple of centuries, and it becomes the dominant force in shaping society all the way up the halls of power by the fourth century. And so, last week, we just looked at this command, which is kind of a paradox, a tension. Uh, in the book of Acts, the actions of the Holy Spirit, the first command of Jesus is wait. I find that interesting. Wait on the Holy Spirit, right? Because we need to wait. We need to not run ahead of God. Last week, we talked about what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to reorient our whole person, right? We need our identities to be reoriented to Jesus. We need our relationships. We need our rhythms. We need our imagination, right? Our mental maps of reality to be completely transformed um, to the reality of God's kingdom. And so he says, linger in Jerusalem. Wait, don't run ahead, right? But wait on the Holy Spirit and allow the Spirit to transform your imagination, right? We said Acts is not just history, but it's actually a living history, right? It's a a living reality that we're invited into. And the kinds of things that God does in the book of Acts are the same kinds of things that God wants to do in us today. And so we need to have this imagination kind of saturating the way that we um, think about our past and our future so that we can live faithfully in the present, right? And so I wanna pick it up where we left off last week, right? Jesus has now risen from the dead physically. He's appeared to over 500 people, presenting them what Luke calls very convincing proofs that he actually is physically back from the dead, because um, unlike the way we often think about first century people, uh, kind of with a little bit of what C.S. Lewis, co- C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, we tend to look at them as like backwoods uh, simpletons who are just gullible, pre-modern kind of people, they didn't believe that uh, dead people get out of the grave either. Um, I know that's hard to believe, but they actually didn't believe that. They were as skeptical as we are. And so Jesus had to keep coming to them in the midst of their doubts and, and saying, touch me, touch me. Like I'm real, right? I, I am I'm really back from the dead. And so understanding that the Messiah was actually there, they asked him a very Jewish question, which we looked at in depth last week. Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Now remember to them, the kingdom of God was, not just spiritual. It was a political reality. It was a social reality. Literally, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to establish a new government. He's going to write out a new charter, a new constitution. He's going to impart new laws and a new society, right? And he's going to, most importantly, displace the oppressors, right? Displace the Roman. I mean, again, they're living under the occupying force of Rome. And so they're essentially asking Jesus, is it now when you're going to overthrow the Romans, And give us back control of our land, give us control of our destiny, give us control of our temple, um, and reestablish your presence here in Jerusalem. And Jesus, like he does, like he never just gives you a straight answer, right? Like this is Jesus' genius. You ask a question and he answers with a question or you ask a question and he seems to not answer, he seems to avoid. Like some people think that Jesus is avoiding their question or um, maybe not answering it or Um, answering it in the negative, because he says, don't worry about times, don't worry about periods, don't worry about when the Father's going to do this by his own authority. God is the one who's going to establish his agenda, and do it on his timetable. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to The end of the earth. So, Jesus actually, what I want you to see here is Jesus actually answers their question. He reframes it and he answers it, but not the way that they think. He says, I'm restoring the kingdom. Yes, I'm actually going to do that, but I'm not doing it the way that you think. The kingdom of God, he says, is already here. The kingdom of God is, is present in me. Jesus says, The kingdom is at hand. Where I am, the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God is already present. And the Spirit, who was promised in the Old Testament with the coming of the kingdom, has already been poured out on Jesus. And and the idea of the Spirit being poured out was the idea of the Spirit anointing Jesus as the king of the world, right? He is being anointed by the Holy Spirit, empowered in his life and his death and his resurrection, his ascension, his teachings, to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. So what Jesus is saying is God has already invaded this world, God's future world, his new creation has already come into the world through me and the power of evil and sin and death has been broken and a new age is here. That's what he's saying in verse eight. A new age has dawned, the age of the spirit, right? And we are now invited, you as disciples are now invited to participate in the spread of this kingdom to the ends of the earth. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 49. It's gonna go out into all of the world, not just geographically, right? But like vocationally, like everywhere you go all the time, you're invited to bring the presence of God, the kingdom of God, the spirit of God with you to be this transforming presence. And so Acts one in, eight in the book of Acts kind of functions like a table of contents. Now, I know some of you are not big readers, but like if you are a reader, uh, the first thing they teach you in school on how to read a book properly is to read a uh, table of contents, right? So don't skip over the table of contents. It's very important that you don't do that, okay? Go to the table of contents. It's going to tell you what's about to come in the rest of the book, and actually, you uh, often, know, oftentimes will tell me this is not a book that I actually want to read, right? So, um, But Acts 1-8 is kind of that table of contents, right? Chapters 1-7 through describe the movement of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem, right? And then in chapter 8, uh, the disciples are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, and Philip, who's a deacon, uh, preaches, just like an ordinary business guy. He goes out and he preaches to some of the Samaritan towns. You see um, all kinds of that happening in in Judea Judea and Samaria. And then uh, in chapter 9, when Saul becomes a Christian, who becomes Paul, um, he begins to take the gospel out. Really starting in chapter 13, the gospel begins to go out all the way to Rome and then kind of beyond there um, in the rest of history. So that's kind of the game plan for the rest of what we're going to look at in the book of Acts. But what I want us to focus on today, um, last week we looked at waiting on the the Spirit for um, essentially a new identity. This week I want us to look at what it means to, this is another intro message, what it means to wait on the Spirit for power to become a community of witnesses. What does it look like to wait on the Holy Spirit? It doesn't just give us a new identity. It gives us a new power to become witnesses in his name. No, that's, that's the whole point of verse eight, right? This is, this is the key. This is the thesis of the book, verse eight. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. As soon as we mention the word witnessing, right, like that's going to trigger some of us. Now, I don't know if you grew up in church, uh, but we live, let's, like, let's just say on the one hand, that, that could be a trigger for some of us who maybe are not uh, Christians or maybe um, even within the church have kind of imbibed like a kind of a, a secular narrative about the world. We, we live in a moment, right, where like to witness to any sort of truth, we live in like this post, what some people have called a post-truth culture, Right? where it's not cool to say this is true, this is ultimate reality under which every other reality kind of falls. Right? And so not only to, to, to kind of announce the gospel, to kind of witness to the reality of Jesus is not just weird, right? Like it was kind of weird when I first became a Christian. Now it's viewed as dangerous and even immoral, right? Like you don't tell people this is right and this is wrong. That is, that is colonialism, right? That is oppressive. That's what we're taught in kind of like our postmodern, um, you know, kind of uh, classes, postmodern moral relativism is what it's called, right? You don't do that. That's, that's not cool. So on the one hand, some of us are hesitant because we, we reject the category, maybe have been told that we're not supposed to tell people what's true like you do you, right? Like you figure out your own truth. On the other side, um, there are some of us that have grown up in traditions, or maybe you became a Christian like me in a traditions. I didn't grow up in church. I became a Christian at 13, my whole family came to Christ, my parents were in their 40s, sister was nine, they're all here this morning, and we came into a tradition where evangelism, that's kind of the word for witnessing, like in some traditions, evangelism was a huge deal. Now, hear me, I'm a fan of evangelism, right? I am for good news the world, we must share the hope that Jesus has, that we're gonna see, but the way in which that often is done troubles me, right? And so I have this deep, and just, just give me a little moment here to do some therapy, okay, out loud with you guys. But like I, my first experiences with witnessing were very bizarre, they were very disturbing, right? Like um, I was a part of a tradition where as soon as you came into the church, you were taught evangelism. And by evangelism, it was basically memorize these four laws, right? These four basic truths. Uh, Craig talked about this a couple weeks ago. Remember these four, memorize these truths, and then you're gonna go out into the community. You're gonna knock on complete strangers' doors and your lead-in question to your neighbors who you don't even know is going to be this, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? I mean, really great lead-in, not like, hey, I'm Brandon, let's talk, like, just, if you die tonight, and I'm sure people on the other end are like, are you going to kill me tonight? Like, what, like, what are we doing here? <laughs> what's, what's going on here? And, and so, for me, like, it, 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 that kind of whole approach seemed just very, um, bizarre and uh, not super effective. I mean, p- me personally, like I didn't see a lot of people come to Jesus. Maybe I just wasn't good at it. I was kind of a little bit of an introvert as a kid. And that, like, I could think of nothing worse than to go to a random stranger's house and knock on their door and ask them if they were to die tonight, where would they go? Um, so maybe for some of us, like this conjures up images like that, of cardboard street preachers handing out tracks and screaming at people, um, aggressive evangelistic sales tac- tactics like, Again, if you're in sales, no offense, but like sometimes it can feel that way. It's like I'm trying to pitch you a condo, you know what I mean? And like, here's my timeshare, and come and do this thing. Like I remember we I was trained in this method of using tracks that looked like wallets with money coming out of them. You've seen those? Oh man, you guys totally missed out. This is awesome. Um, And so it looked like a thousand, like a hundred dollar bill was sitting in a wallet and you dropped it on the sidewalk. And so somebody was supposed to come pick that up and you're kind of like waiting in the bushes and then you jump and you pounce and you're like, hey, you know, Jesus... You, you know, whatever. Like, you make some kind of segue to Jesus, and then you share the gospel with him. Now, I know that may sound weird, but like, that was, I just thought every Christian did that. I just thought that was normal, and I, I was terrible at it. Uh, still am to this day. And so maybe you think of that. You think of that guy in the restaurant who uh, maybe is like a really aggressive evangelist, and maybe they're really gifted at being evangelists, and they can turn any conversation to Jesus. And it's like you know they're ordering from the waitress, and it's like, hey, I'll take some bread. By the way, have you heard of the bread of life, Jesus? And they're like doing that little juke thing, and then all of a sudden, what what started out is just like, hey, I'm getting together to bear my soul. Now they're talking for like an hour, and you and just your whole night feels ruined, maybe. Like, and so I, I don't know if that's like maybe you think of that. Maybe on a more serious note, for some of us, we also think about the history of uh, Western colonialism, right? And we think about the ways in which we've exported not just the gospel of Jesus and the kingdom of God. But American culture, as we've sought to take the gospel around the world, it, it's felt like we're, we're also taking a certain culture, and, and that culture can be kind of uh, oppressive and, and colonizing. And so maybe we have these things uh, kind of in our minds as we think about witnessing and evangelism. Um, Jesus had to contend with the same stuff. By the way, if you're a person that, that cares, as we do, about justice, about reconciliation, about not about avoiding cultural assimilation as we share the gospel with people. Jesus had to deal with the same thing. He said this to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, when he is converted, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus didn't play. So what I want us to do, I just want us to set aside everything we think we know about witnessing, right? And I want us just to try to enter into the story of Acts. All I want to do this morning is I just want you to understand what witnessing meant to them then. And I I hope that by seeing what it meant to them then, we can relearn what it might look like for us here and now, okay? What it meant to them in the book of Acts, what it meant to the disciples, and what it means to us. So the word witness is this word martus, It shows up all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's primarily used in a legal sense, which was the sense in which it was carried out and used in kind of uh, Greco-Roman culture and society, right? Like to witness was to literally stand in a court and provide testimony uh, on behalf of some truth or some person or some situation that you were an eyewitness to. Uh, In the book of Acts, it's used... Uh, a little bit differently than that, and so um, in the book of Acts, there are four primary witnesses. This is kind of interesting. I, I, I learned this when I was studying. There are four witnesses in the book of Acts. God is called a witness in the book of Acts, which is super significant. Um, the natural world is called a witness. the natural world bears witness to God um, to his justice, to his sense of order, and his divine purposes in the world. The apostles are witnesses, right, which is most of what 's happening here in the first early chapters. The literal historical eyewitnesses of, of Jesus. The first, uh, it's going to be 11 because Judas is dead now. They actually saw Jesus. They walked with him. They were his disciples. They smelled his breath. They, heard his, they laughed at his jokes. Like these These are the real like uh, eyewitnesses uh, of Jesus. And then, there are, then the fourth category is just disciples, like ordinary disciples, people who didn't actually witness Jesus physically alive but who come to experience him through the testimony of the apostles, or in some cases, like Jesus himself gives a revelation, like in the case of Paul. So these are just like ordinary men and women. Um, you've got Luke, who, who himself, in writing the book of Acts, is essentially a, a witness. He's, he's telling a story about Jesus and about reality. Um, and, and then you've got Stephen, uh, and then you've got Philip and Paul, and all kinds of other, uh, you know, Dorcas. There's all kinds of men and women that are giving testimony to the reality of God. Here's what I just want you to understand. That thing has been so helpful to me in kind of redeeming this idea for me, right? Um, The most important thing you need to know, if you have like an emotional reaction, if you're just like emotionally like, I don't know that I'm down with this whole witnessing thing, um, you need to understand God is the first and primary witness in the book of Acts, right? God is the primary witness, in the book of Acts, before humans do anything, God is already at work witnessing in the world. And so we are, t- we are invited just to participate with him, just to make space for God to do what God does. God is a witness. To be his child is to be like him. It's to witness not just in the right content, but also the way that we witness needs to be like God. So this is cool. Let me just show you this so you don't think I'm making this up. Acts 15, 8. God, who knows the heart... Bore witness, it's that same word, martus. Bore witness to them, to the Gentiles, to those who are not Jewish, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So God the Father is called a witness here. John 15, the Holy Spirit, uh, also in Acts 5. um, John 15, the Holy Spirit is called a witness. When the helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit is a witness. And then in Revelation chapter one, which we looked at earlier this year, Jesus is called a witness. Remember that? And from Jesus Christ, Revelation 1, 5, the faithful witness, there's our word again, martus, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I just think that's fascinating. Like, I, that gives me so much confidence. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the witness. I'm called to just be with him, to be like him, to join him now i find it really helpful to also understand how god witnessed so god is the primary witness in the book of acts we are called to be like him like we often we kind of like ignore the methodologies of god but like those are spirit inspired and they're given to us in the bible so that we can learn from them right so god doesn't just send us out and just say hey whatever works like he actually sends us out and says be like me do it like i do it. So we don't do it exactly like we don't die. Nobody's dying on the cross for the sins of the world. There are certain things that we don't do, but there are lots of things that God did that we are supposed to do and that God wants to do through us. So how does transformation actually happen? How does one become a witness? How does God witness and transform people's lives? And what could that say about the way that we witness? I would say and argue in the book of Acts, witnessing comes down to two things. This is how God witnesses, truth and spirit. God witnesses through truth and through spirit. Truth kind of being reality or or meaning, right, the larger meaning of why we exist and who God is and who we are, and and then spirit kind of being presence and power. So let's unpack that just for a second, because I actually think that's how all transformation happens, even outside of uh, becoming a Christian. This is how we always change, right? But we see this pattern here in the book of Acts. So truth, truth is just simply, as we talked about last week, reality. I love this simple definition by David Tackle in his book, The Truth About Lies. He says, truth is all of reality, seen and unseen by us. So we think of reality uh, in terms of materiality, right? Like Madonna, not the mother of Jesus, but the actual uh, singer Madonna said a long time ago, we're living in a material world and I am adults, uh, older adults in the room, I am a material girl, right? Or boy, as the case may be. Now, if you don't know that song, you should know that song, right? It's an important song. Um, But, like, we tend to think of reality in material terms. We're, as one philosopher says, addicted to materiality, not just materialism. But notice Tackle says, all reality, seen and unseen, material and immaterial, is all part of truth, is all part of reality, And it's all reality because it's what's seen and known by God himself. Truth is God. God is truth. God defines truth. He defines reality. And reality is like that mental map we talked about last week, right? Like we bump up against reality when we're living a lie, right? Like uh, M. Scott Peck, a famous Christian um, psychologist said, it's not so much that we believe lies, it's that we live them. And if you live lies long enough, you will bump up against, you will bump your head, bump your heart, against reality. The shorthand for this reality in the book of Acts is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the truth of God. It's truth about who God is, right? That he's almighty maker of heaven and earth, that God created everything, that Jesus came and he lived the life that we couldn't live. God himself entered into reality. The ideal becomes real, right? To use philosophical terms. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to God unless they come through me as the center of their reality. So God, God tells us who he is. If you want to know who I am, he says, look at Jesus. Don't look inside yourself. Don't look to Hollywood. Don't listen to your philosophy professors. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. He's the fullness of God's revelation. And that's why we need to come to Jesus as not just a savior, but as a teacher. Jesus was a rabbi who taught wisdom. He taught the mind of God about the world. He was the wisest rabbi to ever live, and he teaches truth. And we need him to teach truth to us. The second reality is is spirit. And this is really the the reality of presence and power. So we need truth, but we also need spirit. We need presence and we need power, right? This idea of presence um, and, and power is the idea of the Holy Spirit. Gordon Fee, one New Testament scholar, calls the Holy Spirit God's empowering presence. I find that to be a really helpful, concise way to think about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not an it, not just a life force, he's he, he's God, and he empowers with the presence of God. So God, when he seeks to reveal truth, let's talk about presence for a second, he doesn't reveal himself to human beings, to us, through like an idea, he doesn't just like write an idea in the sky, like, a, like a, a syllogism or some kind of like haiku or a poem, right? He doesn't come as a book. He doesn't come as a tweet. He doesn't come as, as a manifesto. He draws near to us, John says in chapter one, and he invites us into the kingdom and he transforms us by what? Taking on flesh. Literally, John chapter one says he, he took on flesh, he tabernacled among us. Literally, God takes on flesh, takes on body, takes on meat. God becomes human in every way that we are human. And he moves into the neighborhood. I love that. He moves into the neighborhood, John says. This, this joining of the divine and the human in flesh, this incarnation, this joining of the material and the immaterial, the sinless and the sinful, the kingdom of God and the earth is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what the Spirit does by his presence. He joins intimately things that are so unlike each other and so different, but we're created to be together. Think about that. One theologian calls this the revolution of the intimate." That's what's happening in the life of Jesus. God becomes flesh. People get to experience Him. I mean, can you imagine that like walking with Jesus? Walking with God himself, listening to words from heaven? It's amazing. This is what the Spirit does. It's Jesus' human, Spirit-filled presence that changes people. And, and, And that presence is a powerful presence. It transforms identities, right? It manifests these deep realities of the kingdom and makes them concrete. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. He's the very energy of the life of God himself. He is God in action, manifesting the healing reality of the kingdom of God in ways that transformed their identities and also gave credibility to the reality of the kingdom. You, know you wanna know what the kingdom of God looks like? It looks like dead people being raised to life. It looks like uh, crippled and disabled people being made whole. It looks like the poor being, having their dignity restored and, and coming into the kingdom of God and experiencing the generosity of God. It looks like being liberated from the oppression of evil powers and demons being cast. This is the reality of the spirit. It was so powerful. And that's one of the words that, that Luke uses more than any other. It's right here in Acts 1.8. You will receive this same power. It's the word dunamis. 25 times. And most of those refer to the miraculous and signs and wonders. So Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit to change people. This is how the disciples were transformed. And it's still how we're transformed today, by the way right? Like, we are transformed. If you think about just, like, your normal life, we are transformed by truth or, or meaning or reality in combination with spirit, presence, and power, right? Like, if you only have truth, think about your relationships with people, okay? Like, you have friends that are truth-tellers. They like, they're, like, really proud of the fact they're truth-tellers, but they don't, all like, have that, like, sweet, loving presence. And so they come, and like, I'm going to drop a truth bomb on you. You know, they're just, like, telling you hard truth. But there's no softness. There's no relationship. It's just truth, truth, truth. It's, like, drive-by truthing all the time. You're just a victim of their truth bombing. That doesn't change anybody, right? Truth without spirit is cold, it's detached it's just mean beware truth tellers but on the other hand spirit without truth doesn't work either right spirit without truth is sentimental right like the weird person that like just shows up and just doesn't speak and they just sit there and kind of creepily like stare at you like it's okay like great i'm glad you're here but like what like tell me something that's true tell me something that's going to change my life like bring truth to me help me understand myself help me understand reality Truth, spirit without truth is sentimental. It's confusing. It doesn't change anything. It feels warm and fuzzy and cozy, but doesn't actually change anything about us. Like, that's true. And, like, think about every domain. The best friends are the ones that bring truth and spirit presence, meaning, power, right? They, they, they open up their life to you, they listen, they're empathic, right? They, they, they empathize with you deeply, they resonate, they share truth with you. They create space where the healing power of the Holy Spirit can enter into your life through a touch or a word spoken. I mean, that is such a gift. Same thing in therapy, right? What's therapy? Good, like let's talk good therapy. Just empathic presence and the power of God and creating relationship and then bringing truth to bear in your life. Good parenting is the same thing. A good marriage is the same thing. Like we are transformed through truth and through spirit. That's why Jesus says anyone who wants to worship God must worship him in what? Spirit and truth. So when God says, when Jesus says to the disciples and to us, you will be my witnesses, notice the pronoun, my witnesses. In other words, what he's saying is, you're going to engage with me in my work and you're going to do it my way. You don't get to determine how this happens. You witness, you're my witnesses. I love the way that Willie Jennings defines this here. He's a um, commentator in it's Pastor Acts. He says, witness here carries two fundamental connotations for these disciples. They carry the real history of life with Jesus. They are now in the position of the master storytellers. Like elders of the village, who remember well the old ones and the old ways, so too the disciples will soon speak of when they walked with Jesus, drawing from fragile memories the fragments of sights, sounds, and the words of the man from Galilee. They will be an irrefutable presence. They will also be witnesses of divine presence. They will give room to the witness, making their lives just a stage on which the resurrected Jesus will appear and claim each creature as his own as a site of love and desire. When Jesus says, you'll receive power to be my witnesses, what he, all he's saying is, the same way that I received power from the Holy Spirit, the same way that I lived out this witness in the world, the same way the Spirit witnesses now to me, you are now invited into this. Truth and Spirit, right? And that's what they do. They say, these are the true things that we saw, right? They're eyewitnesses to these realities. We can't explain this. This doesn't make any logical or religious sense to us. All we know is we saw him. I mean, that's like John, 1 John 1. We walked with him. We touched him. Our hands handled the truth of God, the reality of God, and it transformed us. These men who were so fearful and anxious become lions in the book of Acts. Like, how do you explain that unless they've encountered something true. It's, they, they, they believe they are telling not just a story about the world, but the story, the true story of the world. And that's all they're doing is narrating that. And then they bring the presence and power of God. I mean, notice all the miracles, right? Notice all the miracles. The, the power to preach the gospel, yes. They do have the power to preach the gospel. It's only the power of the good news, that allows hearts to be receptive, right, to be, d- to be delivered, to be rescued, is the idea of you are in slavery, you're in bondage, and the only way you're going to be brought from darkness to light is if God does a miraculous work in your life. And so, yes, they need the power of the gospel, they need the power of the spirit to preach, but they also have the power of the, the gospel to not just announce, but to demonstrate, to cast out demons, to liberate people, right, to, to heal the poor. Like, all of these things that are happening in the book of Acts, these are miraculous things, are all part of the power, then they bring the presence of God, right? They, they allow the Spirit, through the Spirit, like they're just, they're participating in, in these different cultures, right? The Spirit of God leads them to, as, as Jesus was united with human flesh, without destroying that flesh, they are Jew and Gentile, united together without destroying or colonizing either of their cultures, That's important for us to see, important for us, and we'll come back to that later. The way they did it, right? The the humility, the listening, the joining, the spirit working through them so that they learn these cultures, they learn what matters to these people, and then they retell the story of Jesus within their cultural frameworks in ways that expand their identity, not destroy their identities. That's what's happening. That's how people change. Truth, reality of God mediated through the presence and the power of the Spirit at work through them. And that is what we are invited to do as well, right? That is our invitation, is to become the same kind of witnessing community as God himself is the great witness, right? And as we see in these examples in the book of Acts, his disciples, his apostles, are witnesses, we are being invited to to join God in bearing witness to the world right? It is, it is our great calling. It is our great privilege to be invited to be witnesses of God, of His power, of His work of transformation in the world, right? We believe that God is still changing people, that He's still transforming people and societies and cultures and communities. We believe this is still possible, and yet if we don't open our mouths and open our lives and bear witness, who will? Who will? God only works in the in the book of Acts, through humans. He chooses to limit himself to work through humans. Incredible. So let me just give that definition of witnessing. Just give a simple definition. This is what we're invited into. As those who are transformed by Jesus' truth through the empowering presence of the Spirit, we are called to just simply go and announce and demonstrate this reality to the ends of the earth. That's what it means to be a witnessing community, to be one who's been transformed by something true and real and good and beautiful that really happened in space and time. And to say, I believe this is history-altering, life-altering. I I can't explain it. It doesn't always exactly make sense, but I know that I've encountered this reality, that Jesus is the king of the world, that he's bringing his reign and his rule into the world. He's done that, and he's doing that through me. And so I'm just going to simply tell, right, like witnessing his storytelling. That's all it is. Storytelling. We are storytelling creatures as humans. We're going to witness to something or someone. The question is what? Uh, So we're telling it and demonstrating it. It comes with power. We we are a healing community, not just giving like propositional truths. And we do that to the ends of the earth. Now, let me just say this as we close. This doesn't have to be like super weird. It just doesn't. It doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be um, arrogant It doesn't have to be um, super difficult even, right? Like the things that were hard for the disciples before the Spirit comes, all of a sudden kind of get easy and they start doing them naturally uh, after the Spirit comes, right? So I would actually argue that to witness is the most naturally human thing that you can do, right? Like it's the most natural thing and you do it every day. Our culture does this every day. Here's the crazy thing. Our culture does this better than the church. Like a secular culture bears witness all the time, right? Like I know that there are cringy examples of, of like witnessing in the church. That doesn't mean that we stop witnessing. It means we stop doing it in cringy ways because our culture is telling a story, right? Like a secular culture around us, we live in a moment that is beating us to the punch, telling a better story than we are because we're afraid, we're embarrassed to tell our story. I, I'm embarrassed sometimes to tell the story. I don't like, I'm not good at this. So I'm just, confession as your pastor, I'm not a great evangelist. I like teaching. I can do this all day long, prepare content, kind of a little detached. We've got some distance here. You know, I'm not great, though, at evangelism. But here's the thing. All around us, the world is bearing witness to gospels, to good news about kingdoms and about the good life and about what it means to flourish as human beings, right? Like our our universities, Hollywood, um, art, like, you know, art festivals. Um, bands in, in concert halls, uh, clips, whatever it is now, uh, Some you know these mu- music theaters around town, White River, uh, journalists, they are telling stories about the world. They are bearing witness to the gospels of, oh, I don't know, scientism, science will save the world. I'm not anti-science, but it doesn't save the world. It doesn't give us meaning, doesn't tell us why things happen. It can tell us what happens. Capital S, science. They're bearing witness to technology, right? And technological solutions as what's going to save us. They're bearing witness to the gospel of capitalism, bearing witness to the to the gospel of political tribalism, bearing witness to the gospel of careerism, bearing witness to the gospel of postmodern gender theory. I mean like this like these are these are witnesses. This is what reality is. They're telling stories. So we do this all the time, right? Like every time you get online, what are Instagram ins- influencers doing? They're bearing witness. This product will change your life. It's changed my life. It's gonna change your life. Like you guys do. I see you on Facebook. Some of you are crazy. You're on, you're on like digital media. So I mean, you are blowing up. Like you find a new coffee shop and it's like, oh man, this changed my life. Did it really change your life? I mean, seriously, like coffee shop. Really did that restaurant really, ch- I mean, but like, we do that, we use these exaggerated terms, like, this is a gospel, and we're not afraid, but here's the thing, when it comes to Jesus, all of a sudden, we're like, oh, oh, oh. Ah, it's weird. No, it's, it doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be any weirder than you sharing about the coffee shop, than you writing that blog, or you publishing that piece about something that you think has transformed your life. It really is kind of natural, and I wonder if our allergies are more related to an impoverished Imagination about what this should look like and really poor methodologies of witnessing rather than just the reality of it. Like I would even argue like our world expects us to witness. They expect us to have a story. I mean, I'll just close with this. It's, it was one of the most famous examples of this. Even non-Christians think it's hateful to not share what we think is really true and ultimate. Uh, magician and artist Penn Jillette, this went viral a couple years ago, um, was handed, after one of his shows, he was handed a Bible. And somebody said, oh man, how do you feel about that? That must have been really mean and judgmental and whatever. And he, here's what he said. So I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. He's not a Christian, he's an atheist. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite, honest, Insane, which I think surprised him because he was a Christian. (laughs) And he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a Bible. We're invited to become a witnessing community. If we believe, if we truly believe this is reality, we must enter into this reality with God and become his embodied presence, his truth, his spirit, his presence, his power in the world. And so I just want to encourage you, maybe for some of us, just application real quick, maybe for some of us, we don't share this because we don't actually believe it. We've not actually encountered the reality of God. Maybe up here with facts and data points and philosophy, but maybe not down here. Maybe we we need truth and spirit, right? So some of you, you believe, but it's not really changed your life. Some of you feel like really good feelings towards God, but you're not really sure intellectually if it's true we need to bring those together. We need the objective historical reality that's given to us in scripture that says, hey, I walked with him. He was there. There's an invitation to learn. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, like, we want this to be a place where you can ask those hard questions. Where you can wrestle with doubt and skepticism and find something that is both intellectually credible and plausible and existentially satisfying because the spirit of God comes inside of you like it did with these early disciples and they said it literally burned. Like this fire that enters into them and just burns them up on the inside and they can do nothing but just go out and begin to testify to the reality of God. We must encounter that reality in our own lives and be transformed, turn away from our sin, open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit, believe and trust and give our greatest loyalty and allegiance to Jesus and be transformed and enter into his kingdom. And then once we do that, it becomes easy. It should become natural for us to then do that. And so we need to encounter it. We need to learn to share our stories. I realize like some of us do feel that, but we, we feel so inadequate. Like we don't know how to actually share our story. So this year we wanna actually help us as a church, like we as your pastors, we as staff, want to create environments and contexts where you can share your stories. We wanna hear your stories. We wanna help you tell your story. So that as we begin to tell these stories, there's a tradition in the black church of bearing witness, testifying. There's a tradition in rural churches, similar thing testifying, bearing witness, telling those stories to each other, becoming a storytelling culture. And as we learn to tell those stories to each other, there's a whole literature of this outside the church, by the way. Read New, Google Bearing Witness in New York Times, and you'll find people bearing witness to what they experience in, with racism. You'll find people bearing witness to what they experience um, with, with the pandemic. We need, to, we need to do this as well. And so I wanna invite you to share your story. I'm on the screen here. These are all kinds of different ways that people shared their story in the book of Acts. All kinds of different contexts in which you may have a story. We want to hear your story. We're gonna tell those stories on Sundays, live, in person. We're going to be telling those stories on our podcast. I want to invite you to get on our podcast. Hannah Anderson, our visiting teacher, is going to be interviewing every week different people in our community and helping give a platform for them to be able to tell their story in a powerful and compelling way. We're going to be doing Alpha later this year where we invite people to come together and learn to tell their story, Christians and non-Christians together, figuring out what it looks like to tell a better story together and inviting people to come and trust in Jesus. So we want to help you in this. So if you have a story Share with us. We're going to be reaching out. If you don't share with us, we're going to come and pry it out of you and, and get it out in form because some of you have some amazing stories that need to be heard. So let's just close our time in prayer. One of, one of the beautiful things in the way this ends in the book of Acts in this chapter one is that they're just united in prayer. And notice every time the spirit moves in a powerful way in the book of Acts, the believers are gathered together in prayer. It's where he speaks, it's where he comes, and he brings this kind of unity of purpose and mind and heart together, and crazy crazy things happen. And so I just wanna invite us into a time of prayer together and just ask God to do that again with us and just remind us that prayer is the context where the power and the presence and the truth of God catches fire in a community. And I want us to become that kind of community together. And so let's pray and ask God to do this work because this feels impossible. It feels so hard. And I know we have so much baggage, and yet this is the imitation of God. I will equip you for this. I have created you for this. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would make us a witnessing community. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would take the truth of who Jesus is, the reality of God, the kingdom of God, who we are, both as sinners but dearly beloved sinners because of your grace at work in our lives. And God, I pray that you would just burrow down deep into us as a community, Your reality, your love, your grace, your goodness to us, your salvation, and your desire for us to join with others, to bring that salvation to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. God, you have promised that you'll be with us to the end of the age. Your great commission to go and make disciples comes with a great helper, an advocate, the Holy Spirit, who's come and empowered us for this work. So Spirit, we want to just open up space for you to be at work in our lives. We want to confess our sins, confess our fear, confess our, our shame, our embarrassment, our deficiencies, our incompetency, God, we don't know how to do this, but you do, and so we just want to cling to that truth, and we pray that you would help us to become this kind of community, transformed by spirit and truth, and bringing that transforming presence into the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.